Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Our next guest I've been dying to have on for a while. I'm a big fan of his work. Tim Brando, Fox Sports. Uh, you may remember him from ESPN or Sirius XM or CBS, but he has been all around college football, basketball, the NBA. He's got a wonderful career and is uh, active on social media as well. Tim Brando joining us. How are you, Tim? Tim, where's home? Shreveport, Louisiana, my hometown. I love that. You got yeah, your start I... there. Did you get your start in radio? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, I was the son of a song and dance man that also was a television man who had come from radio and the newspaper business. So there was really no denying what what I was going to do. Okay, <laughs> I was um, I was born to be a first year mouth somewhere, and um, that's sort of how they referred to my father. He was uh, he was as well known in in television in the fifties and sixties in Shreveport, Louisiana, as uh, uh, Ernie Johnson Sr., Jack Buck. Uh, let's see, um, let me think of a, 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 a Harry Carey or oh, yeah. you name any of the great broadcasters who were second generation broadcasters, their fathers that were national institutions, uh, and they followed uh, uh, the, the, the role of their dad. Well, I did the same thing. And in my hometown, uh, people that are my age and older, 65 and older, they would, um, I get stopped all the time about and ask the question are you hub son hub brando's son and and uh and i I'm, it's a it's a god wink every time it happens because <laughs> my father died young he he died really before i hit big uh in 1984 i i got my big break in 1985 my dad died uh in 1984 he was only 58 years old wow. but he lived the life of a guy in the business that had done, gosh, just an amazing amount. Um, and his dreams were not realized to the extent that mine have been. Uh, but I think that uh, after he was um, uh, sick with cancer, he lived vicariously through me on my journey. And without him, I certainly wouldn't have made uh, the inroads that I did at such an early age and and kind of break in when I was 28, 29 years old, you know, in the, um, uh, in the mid-'80s. And, and, I think, and he got, he got to see that, which meant a lot to me. It, it, he got to see some of those big breaks. He was living and working and uh, had gotten in the hotel business and was living out in Toluca Lake, California. He was a screenplay writer of sorts uh, at the end. Um, uh, had another son who's a half-brother of mine who was a child actor and um, is now working on cruise ships around the country. Uh, and like my dad, can sing and and, and and play the keyboards, and um, he was also a, a tremendously successful child actor who did a lot of commercials, did uh, a segment on Queen uh, when he was a kid, was also in a movie that was a comedy spoof on uh, Friday the 13th called Saturday the uh, 14th, uh, and his name is Kevin Brando. And, um, and, and I've got cousins who followed uh, my dad's pursuits in a lot of other ways in production, one was a television director. I mean, it's kind of amazing. My father was uh, uh, a real role model for a lot of my extended family, too. But 
but he and I did high school football games together when I was 14 years old, oh, and wow. uh, that's that really started my my career as a player. He knew all my life what I wanted to do, and even though I was playing the drums and singing "You're Too Old to Cut the Mustard Anymore" and me and my shadow with him on um, <laughs> on the stage wearing a, a, a tuxedo and. Uh, and he had a show band at that time, a traveling band called Hubrando and the Dreamers, and three local television shows in my hometown. He knew that I wanted to be a sportscaster. That this 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 idea of being on um, uh, on the stage and being a, a crooner was not something. Even though I had the talent to do it, it was not something I really wanted to do. I I didn't like the late nights, and I, I could see enough of what was wrong with the young people he was trying to manage. Uh, that were part of his band, and um, I said that's not for me. But but sports would be so. Uh, but he could do a lot of things. He's still the most talented man that I was uh, ever around, and I miss him every day. Well, I think he's still with you, and I think you you know obviously his his impact on you has you know fueled your career. You mentioned 1984. I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious what what was making it in Tim Brando's eyes? Like you know when you say that you you made it, what was making it? Calling a game, frankly, calling a game that my father could see in Burbank. You know, he was living <laughs> in Toluca Lake, you know, in that area, and uh, and I wanted to I wanted to be a national broadcaster. I I fashioned myself as you know the next Kurt Gowdy, the next Keith Jackson, the the guy that um, the all around three hundred and sixty guy that could call any sport at any time, and. Um, in my earliest days, uh, when I did break through at ESPN, that's sort of what I did. I did a lot of, I did a lot of obscure sports that no one else would try or really thought was career suicide. I would take those opportunities and run with them, and um, it was a way to get attention. It was a way to get noticed. If you could do more things uh, in the business, then you were going to have greater opportunities. And having been raised in the Deep South, uh, not in a media uh, Mecca, uh, like LA or New York, Chicago, Boston, um, you know, or any of the major markets, you, you really were going to have to, to, to show people how much you really wanted to be, uh, relevant. And, and sometimes that meant taking on opportunities that were obscure, you know, like, uh, uh doing, a, a a bowling show or doing, a uh, a ping pong show. I once did, um, uh, at um, in Denver, uh, at South Denver in uh, Colorado Springs, I did uh, uh, I did a world championship uh, for Taekwondo <laughs> alive on ESPN. Now, uh, if you've ever been to a Taekwondo event, you know most of what happens there are guys are kicking other guys in their extremities, <laughs> and and I don't know how many times <laughs> I don't know how many times I had to fill while someone was tending to one of the competitors who had just been, you know, hit where the sun don't shine. And how many times can you do that and save face and not make light of it? Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was an experience to say the least, but it was in those days, ESPN was just happy to get any kind of sporting event on. And, you know, I was, I, I, it was a little bit of Ken John to the, um, the cereal commercial uh, years ago when Mikey, yeah, you know, we try. You know, the kids yeah. would say around the table, "Well, give it to Mikey. He'll he'll try anything." Mikey well, likes it. Yeah, he'll try yeah, anything. At, I remember at that. ESP, yeah, at ESPN, I think the production people there knew. Uh, and on those earliest days, it was Scotty Connell and Bill Fitz who would come over from NBC and CBS 
And they kind of liked that about me, and they said, um, well, if Jim Simpson won't do it or Roger Twible won't do it or um, uh, Sam Rosen, who was doing a lot of freelance work for ESPN back then, th- those guys don't want to do it. Give it to this kid, Brando. He'll do anything. And and so I did, you know, and it um, it really opened up some doors for me. You you know you ended up you were a studio host on Sports Center. You were you, you, right in the middle of ESPN's college football halftime show. And did you have a sense in the '80s and into the early '90s that Sports Center would become what it became? Well, yeah, I, that that I did uh, have a sense of it, um, but I didn't want to necessarily. I didn't see it as the. Uh, it was not my landing spot by any stretch. Sports Center was a means to an end. It was a stepping stone uh, opportunity. It was something to get me visibility. And uh, it was obviously important to the growth of ESPN at the time that I was hired. It allowed me to, to move away from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where I'd been working at the CBS affiliate, to go there. And, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring this up, John, because I know you love college football. Yeah. But the fact that you mentioned all of that that I was doing and yet did not point out that I was the original host of College Game Day says a lot about the way uh, ESPN has projected the history of that show. Yeah. And most people would tell you that it didn't exist until 1993 when they took that show on the road. That's that's just not true. Um, maybe the greatest opportunity that Steve Bornstein gave me upon making me a full-time employee and moving me up to Connecticut. And I had no idea that this is what he had in mind. I I didn't. Uh, But he had in the back of his mind this idea that he was going to create the first pregame show ever for college football, that college football had had halftime shows, but it had never had a full hour-long pregame a la NFL Today, uh, which had become, I think, the standard bearer for all pregame shows in 1975. And I was, you know, a high school senior going into college that year, and we were all mesmerized by what Brent and um, uh, Jimmy the Greek and uh, all of them were doing uh, at that time, Irv Cross, all of them. But, I mean, I didn't know. I thought I was going to go up there, do Sports Center, and then go out and call football games and basketball games because that's what I'd been doing, <laughs> and maybe even some baseball because I love baseball as well and did some Major League Baseball. But, uh he told me shortly after I got there, you're my college football guy, and Berman's my NFL guy, and, and you're going to host college football today. And, and he already had Beano Cook ready to go. Beano, he had brought in from ABC, where he had worked with Jim Lampley on those shows, like uh, the Prudential College Scoreboard, where he did the halftimes and between-game shows. And um, without Beano, there, there would not have been a game day. Uh, he brought him over specifically for that and he he had me in mind to be the host of that show and i and i loved it and i i um i would have actually preferred being the play-by-play guy i would i thought that's what i was going to do but he threw me into the studio and 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 college game day was born and for two years it was a blast and lee corso i did his audition tape and uh and lee became basically at that in that era our kirk curb street and uh, he hired the first blonde bombshell from Oklahoma, Kerry Ross, to be our reporter. And um, and uh, the age of having um, the so-called good-looking, uh, uh, hot, if you want to use that term, female in the in the studio became, um, you know, the, the the way we were going to conduct business in college football. So 
it's funny to me because I, I've, I've always said to my friends that are still there, um, you know, I love it when you guys get major stories written about the history of game day because it guarantees that I get some ink. Yeah, yeah there you go. You know, yeah. guarantee they always at some point have to say, the show began with very little budget and only went on the road for national title games, and Tim Brando was the host. <laughs> but if they kind of, in recent years especially, uh, since they started taking the show on the road and it became an iconic program, and it was hardly close to being iconic when we were doing it, uh, they've sort of forgotten the fact that um, the, the work of a lot of people that busted their chops with very little budget to work with uh, helped make uh, College Game Day something special. The players and the coaches at that time really did care deeply, and it, and it really helped, I think, uh, college football to have the kind of inroads that it did in its growth process post-1984 and the Supreme Court ruling that, that, that said that no longer could the NCAA cash in and monopolize uh, college football. Well, that, that, that Supreme Court ruling is why we're where we are today in a lot of respects. And without that ruling, uh, my, my job, uh, my career, and a lot of other careers probably would not have had an opportunity to take off at that time. All right, Tim, you have agreed to stick around for another segment. I have a lot of questions about your broadcast partners, um, the, the transition when you took leaps of faith with jobs and how that all worked out for you. And I also want to know the best advice that you ever received or what, do you, what advice do you give? More with Tim Brando, broadcaster. Stick around. We're talking to Tim Brando, longtime broadcaster, play-by-play broadcaster on Fox, ESPN, CBS. Tim, you know, you've had... A, ver- a variety of partners in the broadcast booth, including Lou Holtz, uh, Spencer Tillman, others. How much of the synergy or the chemistry between broadcasters is natural? How much can be learned? Honestly, John, I've never had anything but good things to say about anybody, anybody that I've ever worked with. Uh, and that's true in any sport that I've covered. Uh, it was challenging when I got that first opportunity to do my first ESPN game. And I'll never forget the lady that called me, Ellen Beckwith, who worked for Scotty Connell. And she, I, hell, I had forgotten that I'd sent a tape to ESPN in like 1983 or whenever <laughs> it was. And she called me up. Um, she had a very thick Long Island accent. And it was one of these, hello, is this Tim Brando? And I'm like, yes, it is. Hi, this is Ellen Beck with ESPN. How are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. Uh, you caught me here at the office. Um, what can I do for you? And it's, uh, well, I have a ball game on January the 5th uh, at Virginia, and Jim Simpson's not going to be able to do it. But we've had your tape in, uh, in, in our closet here on the Keeper file, and we'd love for you to do a game with Dick Vitale. Oh, wow. Do you think you could work with Dick Vitale? And I'm like, <laughs> I said, well, let me check my schedule. <laughs> you know? And uh, I was doing LSU games in those days on a thing called Tiger Vision, uh, which was had started in 1981-82 when cable was really taking off. And in, in rural states like ours in Louisiana, it was, it was moving much faster, uh, much faster than it had in major markets where there was always a political battle over which cable company was going to, come in and city councils were having issues seemingly everywhere but um i did have a game scheduled to do for lsu that that particular saturday uh but i i knew right away the athletic director and the basketball coach dale brown would have no problem 
if they, they knew I had a chance to do an ESPN game because it was a big deal. And Vitale had already become uh, a well-known uh, broadcaster for them by that time. He'd been on the air for about six years. And um, so I said yes to it, and I called my wife immediately, was ecstatic, and I, I went out and did the game. And my life really forever changed that day because that's when the phone started ringing and uh, I was going to take it to another level. But but I remember Ellen saying to me, you know, Dick is quite a guy now. He's gonna. It's not, he's not like anybody else. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I and I said to her, well, Ms. Beck, with all due respect, I've watched uh, Mr. Vitale, and, and I think uh, without question, I can work with him. Okay, my job is the broadcaster role, and the broadcaster has to make it work. Okay, to appease everyone in the audience. Okay, uh, uh, the analyst is going to appeal to some and not appeal to others. But it's my job uh, to make it sound as though we're having fun and that we've been together all our lives. And right away, she was like, well, that's real. That sounds you're you're confident. And I said, yeah, I, I'm, I am. I said, I've, I've spent my whole life waiting for your call today. So this is going to be good. And you know what? By halftime of that game. It was uh, Duke and Virginia. I'll never forget it. Krzyzewski's team was ranked number two in the country behind Georgetown. And Virginia was a year removed from pay- playing in the Final Four. And it's early January, okay? And um, it's halftime, and our producer, a young man named Bobby Feller, uh, not related to the pitcher Bobby Feller, but Bobby Feller, who went on to become a great producer of a lot of tennis through the years, He's asking, where, where is Dick? Uh, and I'm like, I, I don't know where he went, Bobby. I don't know if he went to the bathroom. And then I looked across the way, and Dick was on a landline. He was on the phone at the scores table. And he said, Tim, you got to run and get him. We're about to come back. And if you don't get him, we're not going to get the on-camera. Well, as a 29-year-old burgeoning talent, by God, I wanted my on-camera opportunity, right? Right. So I run, <laughs> I run and bring Dick. Uh, over and I'm like, as I'm bringing him over to the other side where we were stationed to do the on camera, I'm like, Dick, what what were you doing? And he said, I was just on the phone with Goff. He's talking about Garfinkel. Okay, Howie Garfinkel. Yeah. He said, I was just on the phone with Goff. He says, you sound great with me, man. You're going to stick, baby. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's that's how insecure Dick was. He would call, and he's He's the guy that's been on for six years. He was already uh, a cult figure uh, among cable fans watching college basketball, which at the time was the biggest deal for ESPN. They had no football. They had no Major League Baseball or basketball. College basketball, in a lot of ways, made ESPN because it was it was really the only major event that uh, was not getting big bucks for broadcast rights at that time. Uh, and the tournament was just beginning to take off, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And a lot of regular season games just weren't televised by anyone other than syndicators. So ESPN gave a big-time field of basketball, and basketball in turn gave them a, a big-time event. So uh, we got through with that game, and Vital, uh, to his credit, it was very nice to me. And so I can tell you love the game, and he, he told the people that mattered, how much fun it was to work with me, and and more jobs kept coming. And each contract for each game was like the size of a a, a, door, again, a, a book that was 200 pages. And it was like you sign your life away to get $350, okay, for a game. And that's what I made. I still have the Chuck stub 
of um, of that first check that I got for doing the Duke Virginia game on January fifth of nineteen eighty five. So from that point forward, I've always felt like it's my job to make whatever the circumstances are with whomever I'm with to make that thing work because they're the analysts talking about the game. I have to adjust and adapt to them, not the other way around. Because you go from ESPN to CBS to Fox, and each time it works out for you. And I'm wondering, were they no-brainers, or maybe there's some people in our listening audience that have had to take a faith. You know, I obviously left a newspaper, went out on my own, and, you know, am writing and hosting this show. Like, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety in that, but Tim Brando was betting on himself, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think more oftentimes than not, all of us have to do that, John. Um, there are very few careers that go the way of, you know, I mean, a lot of people and people in your business, especially those that write about media, um, you know, they spend all of their time following, and understandably so. The, the guys that are doing the biggest games uh, r- right now, I mean, without a doubt, it would be Jim Nance on CBS, it would be Kevin Burkhardt on on Fox, and if not Kevin, it would be Gus, uh, whom I think the world of, um, and, and and certainly Mike Tirico over at NBC, and prior to that, Al Michaels. But, you know, not everybody's going to have that kind of career, okay? In fact, there are going to be a lot more guys that have successful careers that, that are going to be like a working actor that maybe didn't get the lead in Gone with the Wind or didn't get the lead in Titanic, okay, but maintained uh, a high profile and a level of relevance throughout his entire career. And that career was long-lasting. So I tell young people all the time that the thing you always have to remember is when you get to that professional fork in the road, you've got to think about um, how you got there, and then is it worth the risk to bet on yourself? And that happened to me several times. Um, uh, I made a career move away from ESPN uh, in the summer of 1989 when we were we were trying to get a new contract done. And uh, I married a young Italian girl from Louisiana named Terry Glorioso, and uh, she did not want to live in Connecticut beyond 1990. <laughs> and and we we lived up there for almost four years. And honestly, I didn't particularly care to live there anymore either. Uh, Sports Center was a lot of fun, and John Saunders and I were best friends, and we worked a lot of those shows together. We were sort of the second wave of, of talent that was brought into ESPN. And, and, and while I was held in high esteem, um, I really felt like, hey, I want to be, I don't want to be a Sports Center lifer, and I don't want to be a game day lifer. I want to be calling games. I grew up wanting to be, as I said, like Keith Jackson, like Kurt Gowdy. In my era, the stars were the guys calling the games. And I still believe it takes much greater talent to be a play-by-play broadcaster of various sports than it does to read a teleprompter in a studio. Uh, Now, the direction of the business was changing at that time, and to Steve Bornstein's credit, he saw me as a guy that could be one of his studio stars, and um, I fought that. You know, I, I I, I didn't see it that way. And it probably cost me financially to some extent uh, by by sort of sticking my foot in the ground and saying, you know what, I, I would love to stay here at ESPN, but not live in Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go home. And I remember Kurt Gowdy, who was my mentor, 
I looked up to him so much. I named my little brother, who was a great journalist and unfortunately passed away in 2020 from cancer in Hong Kong, an internationally renowned journalist, my brother Kurt. And uh, I named him after Kurt Gowdy because my mom and dad um, were, were having a baby that they didn't expect to have. And my older sister would have named the child if had it been a girl. And, and I got to name it because it wasn't a girl, it was a boy. And I named him Kurt after Gowdy. Well, fast forward to 1982, the Final Four, um, a, a local radio broadcaster uh, in New Orleans, and I'm, I'm asked to, 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 to interview Kurt Gowdy on my nightly sports talk show. And Gowdy was, of course, the host still of American Sportsman. And he was coming in to do the, uh, the Final Four uh, with Kaywood Ledford on Westwood One Radio. And uh, his mentorship of me began that weekend. Uh, he took me to breakfast the morning of the Saturday semifinals, and he spoke to me for three hours and really took me under his wing. And, and I'll tell you, John, it was um, it was a gift from heaven to, to have that opportunity, to have that moment. And we maintained contact throughout my career uh, until he passed away. And his brother, I mean, his his son, Kurt Jr., uh, produced me when I did the Little League World Series for him in 94. Um, I don't mean to digress, but... I had to tell you that because it's meaningful to me. Of course. But I remember, I remember at that moment in the in the summer of '89 when I was making that deal. I talked to Mr. Gowdy, and he said, "Tim, he says you want it all." And he said, "Yeah, there's risk involved, but if they want you, they will get you on your terms. So bet on you." And I did. Tim, before I cut you loose here, I always ask uh, our guests, and I particularly want to ask you because of all the influences you've had, the best advice you have ever received. You know, what comes to mind when I when I talk about the advice that you got in life or career or otherwise? Well, I'll go back to Kurt Gowdy. That day uh, at, the, at the Final Four, I had had him on my show on the Friday night before the Saturday semifinals. Now, I'm credentialed for my second Final Four. I'd gone to the my first Final Four was in 1981 because LSU had made it in Philadelphia. That was the one where President Reagan was shot um, before the, the championship. And it was also the year that they had the last consolation game. But in 82, if I'm not working in New Orleans and I don't have my own show on WGSO radio, I don't get the chance to have Kurt Gowdy on my program. But after we met, and I got to tell him that I named my little brother after him. You know, you can imagine he's looking at me, and I'm telling him this stuff. To <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right, all right, kid, listen, uh, enough already, okay? You don't have to tell me all this. And I'm like, no, Mr. Gowdy, I'm going to call my house. I'd really like your namesake to get to hear your voice. And when I got him off the phone with my little brother, his eyes started to, to tear up. I mean, it really got to him, John. And... And it's and it really humanized him to me. Now you got to remember he had he was about three years removed from calling the Cowboys and Steelers Super Bowl in seventy nine seventy eight seventy nine. Uh, he had just been cut loose from CBS Television uh, in eighty one eighty two. He was in the uh, twilight really of his career, but American Sportsman was still his thing, and I loved him. Okay, and he wasn't terribly old. It was hard, I think, for a lot of broadcasters of that generation, even the best, to hold on to their jobs past 60, okay? It's not like today where you see a guy like Al Michaels doing it until he's 80 or Brent did it until he was almost 80. 
and Byrne, you know, God bless Byrne, who did it for such a long period of time. And uh, and as it turned out, Byrne turned out to be uh, uh, maybe a, a greater influence in my um, in my professional career as I got older than I ever imagined anyone could be. Uh, and Byrne was never really a number one guy. I mean, when he got the SEC play-by-play job, uh, it was a demotion for him. Dick Enberg had just been brought over from NBC to do our number two games behind Jim Nance. So, I mean, it was a big, big deal at that particular time for Mr. Gowdy to tell me what he did. But he got off the phone. He was pretty emotional. And he said, Tim, I want to take you to breakfast tomorrow. Why don't you come to the Hyatt and meet with me? And I'm telling you, John, he told me things about what the industry was doing and and what it was going to be doing that enlightened me in ways you would never under, uh, comprehend. All guys that were doing radio when they were 25 or 26 years old and maybe doing play-by-play on the side to make some 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 uh, uh, extraneous income, we're always worried that if we get a TV gig at a major job, uh, I'll have to give up my play-by-play, and I really didn't want to do that. And Kurt told me, he says, have you, have you applied for jobs at local television stations in big markets? I said, yeah. Have you gone in for interviews at some of them? I said, yes, sir, I have. And he said, don't take any right now. Don't leave. He said, you're, you're working in radio. You've got your own show. You've been creative with it, I can tell. He said, you're doing play-by-play for a major college. And he said, this, this cable thing, okay, this is 1982. He says, this cable thing, this ESPN deal, it's going to take off. It's probably going to be the biggest story to hit sports media in, in, in this generation. He said, if you keep doing this and you can keep making tapes and sending them out, you're, you're going to get an opportunity. And that way you can do what you really love and make a lot of money. And he says, you might even be able to do what you love and live where you want. And not everybody can do that. He says, you strike me as the kind of guy that wants it all, the white picket fence, the wife, the kids, the grandkids. I said, yes, sir, that's me. <laughs> and he said, well, this, this, is, this is advice you need to pay attention to. And guess who the first person that called me was after I did that game with Big Vitale in 1985? It was okay. Kurt Gowdy. There you go. See, kid, what did I tell you? And you know what, uh, John, when, when, when I left CBS abruptly, uh, in 2013, it was as much my doing as it was um, anyone's. I, I I made some judgment errors in reaction to losing a radio show that was being televised on their sports network, and uh, I didn't react uh, as favorably as perhaps I should have because I what they were doing with my my show had nothing to do with my broadcasting career, but I um. I made some mistakes in the way I reacted to it, and ultimately we agreed to divorce. And when we did, John, I'm 58 years old, and now I've worked at Turner, I've worked at ESPN, I've been at CBS, and I never thought about leaving CBS, but what I had, some some things that I had said were consequential, and it led to a, um, a divorce between CBS and me. And when the dust settled and we parted amicably, and we did, to, to CBS's credit, they were very, very good to me. 
they asked me, is there anything we can do on our end? And I said, yeah, let me handle the narrative on my exit because I still have a career here that I want to see to the end. And I know I've got a lot of tread on my tires. And uh, when Fox vetted me, um, they were very favorable. And um, that meant a great deal. Tim Brando, you're the best. I appreciate you. Wish you uh, luck the rest of the way. And obviously I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, so thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, John, I'm flattered that you asked. Thank you. I, I too, enjoy what you do. And uh, for the last 16 to, to 20 months, you've been keeping me up to speed on what the hell's going to happen <laughs> out west in right? college football. Well, so buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Take care, John. All right. Take care. There he goes. Tim Brando. You can catch him uh, on your television. Uh, there, you learned something. I mean, started the first sports center, uh, college football game day, all, you know, his experience with the NCAA tournament. Fantastic stuff. We're going to pivot to the NFL playoffs. Jennifer Lee Chan, NBC in the area. She covers the Niners NFC title game. We'll take a deep dive on it next. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth. to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.